Welcome to Marketing Hell, the podcast that picks through the rubble of our most dismal marketing failures to see if we can learn one or two lessons that mean you, the listener, will make all different blunders in your own campaigns. My name's Richard Leyland. In this episode, I'm interviewing Ginny Dietrich. Ginny's the founder and the CEO of Arment Dietrich, which is a marketing communications firm in Chicago, and she's also the founder of SpinSucks, and she loves a good podcast. Why do I say that? Well, because she's the host of the Spin Sucks podcast, the co-host of the Inside PR podcast, and the co-host of the Agency Leadership podcast. As always on Marketing Hell, Ginny, our guest, is a skilled marketer. She's actually good at this stuff, so I thank her for being happy to put her ego aside and to share her own personal marketing hell with me and with you. So let's get to it. Ginny, good afternoon. Ah, hello. It's so good to be here. Well, I'm really glad to have you on Marketing Hell, so uh, welcome. Can we start with the fire ant funeral? Because I'm a Brit and I have no idea what that even is. <laughs> sure. In the South, in the States, in the Southern States, so uh, Alabama, Georgia, Texas, Florida, across the, the bottom half of the U.S., there are fire ants. And it's funny because I live in Chicago and I've always lived North, so I've never experienced them. And when I started my own agency, um, I was working with a client that that's what they did. They, they had product that treated fire ants. And so here I was this kid from the North, you know, starting my own agency at the ripe old age of 30 and helping them figure out how to uh, launch a new product in a new category for a really specific thing you know that these fire ants that if you go out in your front yard and you step on a, a mound they will crawl all the way up your body and sting you to death so it's it was a pretty fun experience just from that that perspective and so this is a spray a chemical this is what is this yeah it's um you actually put the the at the time there this wasn't this didn't exist yet so it used to be that you would spray your 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 lawn several times throughout the year and this new category that we developed was a once and done kind of thing so you put it in like a a fertilizer spreader and you put it across the the yard for the one time and it took care of the whole year and the other thing it was is, is it was safe for pets and kids so we were creating this whole new category for really annoying pests that could you know if you if you're allergic to insect bites it could kill you and we, you know, it was it, the idea was that you would you would apply it once, you were done with it for the whole season. It was safe for your kids to be out there. It was safe for your pets to be out there, and you were done. Right. So, what are you doing for this company? You're developing a, a launch, a PR campaign. What's the? Yeah, I mean, we we did. We launched the the product, and we because we were creating a new category, it was very much you know ha having to create brand awareness. If we were to do it today, and this was several years ago, but if we were to do it today, we would be looking at things like how do we build search engine optimization and how do we encourage people to search for these kinds of things because it didn't exist. So people didn't know. And one of the best ways to do that back then was traditional PR. It was very much a let's create an event that's going to get the attention of national media and get the word out there as fast as we can so that people start, you know, before the season began so that people would go into Home Depot and Lowe's and, and the other big box stores, Walmart, Target to buy this for the summer. Okay. So you've got a, you've got a plan for a launch, traditional PR. So you're out there, what, TV, magazines, web, what? Yeah. I mean, we were looking, we were trying to, we were going after the Today Show, Good Morning America, 
um, the New York Times, I, all of it, all the ho the home and gardens, so Better Homes and Gardens and House Beautiful and Southern Living and all like everything. We were going after radio, TV, and newspaper and magazine all at once. Tell me how it went. <laughs> I have to say that this is one of the most creative things that I have been a part of. And what we did is we went to the South. We went to Mississippi. There is a fire ant uh, festival in several of the Southern states every year. And they, you know, it's a festival. They have games and they have fried foods. And, you know, it's a very, a very, Amer I think a very American, like fair type of thing. And so we, we created a relationship with the coordinators, the event coordinators of the Fire Ant Festival, and we were the largest sponsor. And we decided to have a Fire Ant funeral. And we, <laughs> we commissioned a Fire Ant that was probably, I'd say, six feet long by maybe four or five feet tall. And it was upside down in a casket. And so we had that, we had that made, it was a sculpture. And then we hired mourners. We hired a Baptist preacher. We hired, like we hired people to attend the funeral and we hosted a funeral for the fire ant. And it was during this fire ant festival. And as we were pitching the media for this, we were looking, I mean, we were, we were pitching the Today Show Good Morning America, and everybody was going to send a stringer for this. Everybody was like, yes, we will be there, confirmed 100%. This is great. We'd love to see this. I mean, it was a huge, huge, huge undertaking. We probably, it was probably, I don't even remember now, maybe a million and a half dollar project, um, just from that perspective. And we had everybody confirmed. Let me just jump in and ask. So one and a half million. Tell me roughly where that money went. Where, where have you spent one and a half million in this? It was mostly, so the, we had the sponsorship of the festival. That was a good chunk of it. And then we commissioned, you know, we hired all these actors to act as mourners and, the, and a, a Southern Baptist preacher. And then we had the, the sculpture commissioned. But then a lot of it was in our time because we spent probably six months pitching national media to get them there. And back then you could actually pay for travel and accommodations for um, journalists to come to this kind of stuff. So they would actually send somebody, they actually put somebody on a plane and, and take them down to Mississippi so that they could attend this, this fire ant funeral. Um, so I would say that the majority of it was that was in fees. It was just in, you know, getting the work done. And we had everybody confirmed. Everything was, was going great. And the day before, we were all there, of course. And we were trying, we were getting, getting everything ready. And we had done our, our dress rehearsal. We had, we, we had pallbearers that actually carried the casket uh, down the aisle. Uh, the Southern Baptist preacher gave his sermon. Like we, we, we ran through the whole thing. It was perfect. People that were at the festival that day got to, to see it. And it, this was, of course, before social media. So imagine if it were happened today, like you're at a festival and you see this happening, a dress rehearsal for a fire ant funeral happening. It would have been all over social. It would have been on Instagram. It would have been on Facebook. It would have been on Twitter. It would have been all over the place. And it was it was really exciting. And the the conference coordinators or the event coordinators were so excited because not only did they have this huge sponsor, which they'd never had before, that they just were like, they rolled out the red carpet for us. They just thought this was the best thing ever. And 
so we we proceeded. You know, we continued to to get everything ready, and we had our dress rehearsal, and then we went. Can out. I just jump in here? Let me let me just jump in here that because. I don't know yet how this story is going to go wrong, right? You're on the Marketing Hell podcast. I, I think this is going, this is not going to end well, but I don't yet know how. <laughs> and so before I know that, did you ever wonder whether, you know, using the, the sort of metaphor or literal example of a funeral was kind of always destined to go wrong? Is there something a bit jinxed and odd about <laughs> trying to shape a marketing campaign around a funeral? Was it hold you from know, the beginning? That's a really good question that we did not consider at all. I would consider that today, but at the time, no, we didn't consider that at all. Like we didn't consider that we were jinxing ourselves. No, we hadn't. I mean, literally everything was going as planned. We had everybody like national media galore confirmed. We had a perfect dress rehearsal. We had audience members who were there just you know watching the rehearsal everything was going exactly as planned exactly and then we got up the next day and you know we we of course get to the festival earlier i think we were going to have the festival around lunchtime we ran through just a a quick dry run of the the funeral one more time not a full-on dress rehearsal but just another run through and that was the day that President Bush took the United States of America to war. Oh, wonderful. So this is the first, the second Iraq war. Just what you need. Yeah. So what happened? So nothing, absolutely nothing happened. Literally no one came. And people had already flown there or they had stringers that they had dispatched who had to stop. They had to go back to their hotel rooms and report on this story instead. No one showed up. It was such a big news event that nobody even went to the festival that day. So there were no attendees. We still had, we still hosted the funeral because we wanted to get the B-roll that we, we sent out later. But it completely flopped. I mean, it it was months and months and months and months of preparation and literally walking on cloud nine the day before because it had gone so well and it just like it just nothing nothing no one no one came so you but you went through it anyway and so who's actually attending you still went through with it with the actors that you'd hired we did and and you know i mean with the the magic of a video you can make it look like there were people there there were not people there it was terrible. It was terrible. It was terrible. And so how did you carry yourself through this, right? Because you're embarrassed. It's sort of shame making, but you have to be there, smile and continue. How, how did you carry yourself through the day? I mean, we, we did the best we could. The challenge with it is, and, and hindsight, of course, is 2020, but we didn't have a plan B. We didn't plan for you know, if no media shows up because we had like, they literally had to get on a plane and fly there. So we had confirmed it itineraries. Some, some of them were already there. It never occurred to us that they wouldn't show up because they were already there. It, it just never, there was no plan B. So, you know, I mean, the client was, was completely gracious and it was a client that we kept for a really long time but it sort of became the inside joke and and they they sort of blamed us a little bit because even though obviously it was not our fault that this big thing happened to the country at that time we didn't have a plan b and so they blamed us for that they blamed us for 
for spending all this time and money and not having the same effect that we would have had it gone through the way we anticipated. And so I think the big lesson there was, you know, have a plan B and a plan C and a plan D and a plan E and a plan F because and anybody who does events knows this. Nothing goes according to plan ever, 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 ever. But yeah, they definitely, they they were gracious on the day, but the, there was some animosity. They definitely blamed us for some of that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a sufficient sum of money down the drain that there must be some kind of a post-mortem. There must be yeah. consequences of yeah. some type. So you've described, but you kept them as a client, right? You, you didn't ruin it to the point that they walked away and said, we will know. We did. Deal with we did. We did. I guess it's something that an insurer would call an, uh, like an act of God, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, they, we couldn't do anything about that particular thing. But like I said, there sh we should have had a, a plan B. And we we did get B-roll and we did send it to the media outlets, but they just weren't as interested. That one was rough. And and I will tell you, we didn't get that kind of budget again. The, they were a client for another five or six years and we never got that kind of budget again. Yeah, well, that's a tough one. Can I tell you, it, it makes me think of something that happened to me last year less on a less serious scale but it, it's an interesting thing to consider so um business that i i last worked for not where i'm currently employed uh, we put on a, an event in san francisco we we're very proud of it we showed some really innovative technologies and as part of that we um, did a sort of mini media event and we worked with a really big tech pr agency in in san francisco one of the main ones and tasked them with bringing journalists along to this event and um zero journalists turned up they didn't get anyone but the account lead turned up to the event stood where he was oh. supposed to stand spoke to all the people he was supposed to speak to and was essentially the pr lead without a journalist in tow and i was so impressed that he actually fronted it and said <laughs> well i'm still coming we haven't got a single journalist to chaperone here and that was why you employed us to you know to be involved here and and I remember just thinking, you know, you get great credit for that. It's an absolute spectacular failure, but you turned up and you smiled. And something else that it makes me think of. So, um, you know, I'm, in, I'm here in the UK, right? And um, I noticed that you folks um, in America had a presidential election at the start of November. Right? We, we did, in fact. And um, we were planning on putting out a... <laughs> the whole world noticed. Yeah, we, all, we were paying attention. Um, my company, we planned to put a newsletter out on that date, a generic piece of email marketing, nothing special. And people were telling me we shouldn't do it because there was a presidential election in the United States. And I remember thinking, so? The world's, you know, generic digital marketing doesn't need to stop because there is an election. It's just, it's strange the extent to which outside events affect marketing in ways that I don't think they really need to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about things like, I mean, I was doing a media event for 9-11, same thing. Like, we literally had reporters in the lobby of the client's office when the planes hit and we all just went to the cafeteria and watched like there was no media event and we had them all there and even in the last year think about all of the things that events that had to be canceled travel that had to be canceled like all of the stuff that's happened that you you can't control at all but you have to be prepared for yeah yeah, it's very true. I think something like 9-11, it's obvious that's an, an absolutely massive world event and I think everyone just stopped. But the sort of the predictable global events are those that I just think, you know, keep going, don't stop. <laughs> I think for the next presidential election, you can probably keep going. This one was a bit contentious. True. <laughs> so have you got any other um, 
sort of interesting areas that we could touch on. You know, I think there are also small tactical things like where you make mistakes or there's been a failure that you're just like, I mean, I remember making in my very first job, making a, a massive mistake with we had printed um, advertorials and we had the client's 800 number on the back and nobody called the number that was printed on the back to make sure it was correct. So we, you know, we had $30,000 worth of advertorials printed and the phone number was wrong. And that came back on me. So you can bet, I don't have to do this so much today, but you can bet every time there is a phone number printed on something before it goes to print, I call it and make sure that that dumb phone number is correct because you know there's there's those little tactical things that you learn throughout your career that you're just like I can never make that mistake again ever yeah the one that is legendary in in just general marketing circles is where you you mean to blind copy a large distribution list and in fact you just do the cc and everyone has fun with whoever else you copied that's that seems to me to be a universal rite of passage for any kind of a marketing role yes. we've done that at some point early on <laughs> uh, it's a, that's a good fun one, yeah. So, so my theory on proofreading and getting around things is that there's never ever been a a piece of copy written for a marketing campaign or a, a document written that was perfect first time. That absolutely everything never needs more than one set of eyes on it in order to pick the really obvious mistake you made. You know, you put the wrong year. You said today's 2020. It's 2021. You know, really straightforward and that. And that actually, as we get more senior as marketers, we can kind of think that we've become much more sophisticated and we're all worried about strategic planning and all the rest of it. When in fact, there's just a typo in your document and you have to make sure that you find it. Yeah, it's I was funny you say that because I pitched, we pitched a piece of business last August uh, with a UK firm, actually. They came back to us and they said, we love you. We think you're amazing. We'd love to hire you, but there's a typo in the title of your proposal. And it wasn't in the title on the, like on the page, it was in the the file name. <laughs> and I was like, are you serious? Um, but um, yeah, I'm just interested in any other areas that you can think of where things did not go as you would like them. Think, things where you kind of your own sense of professionalism and being good at your role gets a bit challenged. You know, I think from a, from that perspective, it's really, you know, there are things that I certainly wish I had done better um, or differently. And most of it comes around speaking on stage. And there are a couple of things that I have learned in my years of speaking. And one of them is that I'm not so great if I get myself out of the zone before I go on stage. And what I mean by that is um, I was spoke in San Diego probably three years ago and it happened on a Monday, the speaking engagement was on a Monday, so I would have had to fly out on, on Sunday. So we decided to go early and we spent, my family and I spent like five days there. And then I went on stage, literally got out of the pool, got myself dressed, went on stage, left stage, got back in the pool and we spent another two days there. And it was a bomb. I bombed the whole thing. It was not... It wasn't a good presentation. I wasn't on the ball. It was not my A game. I was I was thinking more about the fact that I was missing being in the pool or on the beach with my kids than I was thinking about the audience in front of me. And it, it was a complete disaster. So I've learned that if I'm going to 
attach a family trip onto a speaking engagement that I do the work first and they come later <laughs> because that I can't, you know, I, I wanted to be on the beach. That's where I wanted to be. I didn't want to be in front of the people who would, who were there to see me speak. And I would say an, another thing that I have learned over the years and I have, I have some very good friends who give me constructive criticism that hurts at the time, but they're correct. And some of the things that I've learned about my own speaking is I have some nervous tics. I play with my hair, which especially as a woman, it demeans your your expertise when you're up on stage and you're twirling your hair around your finger. I also stand with my legs crossed um, when I get really nervous or I talk too fast. But it's really interesting that you've um, you've heard these things and you've taken them on board. I haven't really heard people say these sorts of things. These, these sound like great lessons, important lessons for you. Oh, yeah. And it's it's hard because you have friends who will say things to you that you're like, and you're embarrassed and it sucks hearing it. And then you start to think, well, does my friend think that I'm terrible? And, you know, but really your friend, if your friends are giving you that kind of constructive criticism, they, they really care about you and they want you to do your best. And so after a while, you, you kind of get over your ego a little bit and you really pay attention. And we all have ticks. We all do. It doesn't matter if you're presenting to a client or you're doing a new business pitch or you're in front of the executive team or whatever it happens to be. We all have ticks and it's important to, to understand what they are. And sometimes what you think they are are not what they really are. Like the fact that I play with my hair. Um, so I think those kinds of just, you know, even if you seek out the constructive criticism, cause not everybody will give you that either. So there's, I think there's some lessons in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's something like that I hadn't thought about there as well, that this, a bit of that's gendered, right? Nobody's going to talk about whether a man touches the hair and whether that undermines the things right. you're saying. So you got to deal with more than men do. So that, that's, that's a challenge. <laughs> In <it>? some cases. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You see, I um, have done quite a bit of public speaking and I have a sense that I'm mediocre at it. I'm certainly not a bad public speaker, but I don't think I'm good. But I don't think I've ever had any constructive criticism of my public speaking. I've just got my own completely skewed sense of it from how I feel about it. I may, I may need to go out and ask people. <laughs> well, I mean, you're we are our own worst critics. So probably the things that you're critical about yourself are probably not things that bother people. And then maybe there are things that you don't even realize that people are like, you know, that kind of diminishes your expertise. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a bit scarred in terms of public speaking from um, standing for election to the, the board of a trade body that, that I was in and doing it twice, doing it twice and both times not being elected. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Losing an election is a bit of a blow to your ego. Yeah, I would be scared by that as well. Yes. Yeah. And funnily enough, you know, I'm, this is maybe four or five years ago. I was, I guess, about 38, 39 years old, something like that. And when I found out that I hadn't been elected, I just left the room and went home. Even though I'm a grown-up, I've behaved like a child. <laughs> I couldn't handle it. I was like, if they're not going to vote for me, I'm not staying. Off I went. I'm not. Why would I stay? <laughs> yeah, maybe I felt too entitled to it. And that's how we ended it. By the way, she mentioned stringers being sent to this fire ant funeral. Does everyone know what that means? I didn't, so I googled it, and apparently it means... Uh, a freelance journalist retained part-time who reports in a particular region and is paid for each piece of work. You live and you learn. So I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks once again to Ginny, and I will be seeing you next time.
Sorry, what do you say? Do you know where Louis is? Uh, I don't know. 